Share your perspective. Only on Cape Talk. Welcome back. It is 9.34. Views and news through till 12 o'clock with me, Clarence. And I look forward to the interaction with Dr. Chris Smith, especially when that interaction is with young learners in the city of Cape Town. Uh, so the Naked Scientist joins us from the UK via Zoom. And we have the International School of Cape Town also joining us via Zoom, their year seven class and their teacher, Rob Tate. Welcome first, Dr. Smith. It's good to have you back. Morning, morning. How are you? I'm lekker. I've had a good night of jazz last night, so I'm firing on all cylinders today. Uh, really chuffed about that. And then um, the teacher, Rob Tate, are you there? Yes, good morning. Welcome, Rob, and welcome to the Year 7 class. I do believe that they've uh, put together some pretty decent questions, and I hope uh, Dr. Chris Smith is is ready for it. I don't know if you want to introduce the first learner with the question, and then we can proceed. Yeah, first up we have Grace. Grace, we are now listening to you, and so too is the Naked Scientist. Hello. Please go ahead with your question, Grace. Why do we always find dead cockroaches on their back? Wow, really good. <laughs> Hi, Grace. The answer to this one is probably that if you think about the shape of a cockroach, they've got a nice big flat back, so it's a relatively stable surface. Also, they've got legs down one side, legs down the other side. And when they die, they don't die with their legs in just one position. Often they'll die trying to still move and go go somewhere. They don't know I've died now, I have to stay still. So the legs on one side might work for a bit longer than the legs on the other, and this may have the effect of catapulting the cockroach onto its back. And once it's on its back, it's on that nice big flat stable surface, so it's very hard for it to get back the other way. So the bottom line is probably some fall over and end up that way, some probably flip over, but once they're over, because they're on that big flat back surface, very stable position, hard to get them back over onto their legs, which is less stable, so they stay that way. Grace, your question answered. Uh, Rob Tate, teacher at International School of Cape Town. Our next question comes from whom? Um, next up, we have Alex. Alex, go ahead with your question. How does medicine know its effects in our body and where to direct its effect? Oh, hi, Alex. Are you a wannabe doctor? No. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you will be after this answer. I think this is a terrific question because it's something that bothered me right till I went to medical school. And the answer is that... When you take a headache pill, the headache or the painkiller doesn't know where it hurts. What's actually happening is that that drug, when you take it and swallow it, is absorbed into your bloodstream and it goes everywhere in your body. But what it's doing is stopping the processes that cause pain in certain parts of your body if they're trying to happen there. So let's take hitting your thumb with a hammer. We've all done that or dropping something on our toe. It really hurts. When you damage a bit of your body, you trigger the process of inflammation. And inflammation is where you injure or damage tissue. This produces various chemicals, including a family of chemicals called prostaglandins. And those chemicals then wind up the nervous system in that area saying, this is painful here. So when you pop a painkiller, what it does is it goes all around your body, including to the injured tissue, and it inhibits the production of those inflammatory chemicals in that particular area. So the area remains injured. It remains hurting, but you can't feel that it's hurting because the processes that would normally tell your nervous system, be very sensitive about this area it hurts, have been damped down because you've taken the painkiller. Thank you for your question, Alex. Rob Tate, our next question comes from... Um, next up, we have Carlin. 
Thailand, it is your turn. You can go ahead with your question. This is my question. Why do we dream? Oh, hi, Colin. I just want to add one thing to the, the other question because I realise I only talked about pain. If I may just be indulged for a second to add one extra thing because this is really important. The other aspect to how drugs know where to go in the body is that we're now into this era where we understand a lot more about the structure of cells and molecules in our body. And different cells and different tissues have different shaped molecules on their surfaces. And one other way of targeting therapies to certain tissues or sites in the body now is that we rationally design drugs to have just the right shape so that they will fit into, like a key in a lock, specific structures only on specific cell types. And we're now into this regime where if we want to treat certain cancers, for example, we know that certain cancers have certain combinations of molecules that have a very specific shape on their surfaces. And we can now make drugs which go to just those sites. And because other cells in the body that are not cancerous don't have those sites, the drugs will ignore them. But rather like Velcro sticking onto the, the fluffy surface, they will find the cells with just the right shape, dock with them, and then they can have an effect on those cells. So that's the other thing. On to dreaming. The, the answer is we have no idea why we dream. We know that we all do it and we know that animals do it. And we know that because we can register brain activity. If we put electrodes on the head of a person or an animal and we watch what happens to the brain when we go to sleep, brain activity profoundly changes. But it doesn't just turn off when you go to sleep and you become unconscious. There are cycles of activity and there are rhythmic cycles of activity. And if you wake a person up when they're showing certain patterns of these activities, they will by and large say, oh, I was just dreaming. So we know that the brain goes through cycles when we sleep of having this so-called rapid eye movement phase of sleep, which is when we dream. And animals show just the same patterns. So there must be something about the brain of us and our animal relatives that means that the way that brain works is dreaming is an integral part of it why we need to do this we have absolutely no idea we just know that when we go to sleep we disconnect the parts of the brain that each do their own jobs they're not linked together talking to each other with the same connectivity as they are when we're awake and conscious they also show patterns of elevated activity when we go to sleep and dream so they're they're clearly playing out or functioning or doing things that they would normally do when you're awake but they're doing it in isolation and some of that information trickles into your subconscious and is presented as a dream but we we don't know what the role of it is we just know that if people don't dream and don't have normal restful sleep they don't feel rested and they don't feel happy in the aftermath so for us to feel happy to feel relaxed and rested we do need a normal sleep cycle which includes dreaming but what its role is whether it's ditching old information getting rid of stuff that's wrong or consolidating what our experiences were during the day in our memories so that we can remember them for the future whether those are the case one of them or all of them we actually don't know and it's very hard to find out really and thank you for that question, Carlin. Uh, Rob Tate, the teacher at International School of Cape Town, they are chatting with the Naked Scientist through till 10 o'clock this morning. Uh, who's next? Stop, we have Ilham. Ilham, we are ready for your question. Hello, my question is, how and why is our Earth's score so hot and where did the energy for that come from? Oh, what a terrific question. Good to have some geology as well. The Earth's core takes up about half of the interior of the Earth. So if you were to dig down a long way, once you got about halfway to the centre of the Earth, you would begin to encounter what we call the core. 
And that's about 3,000 kilometres under your feet right now, and it extends all the way down to 6,000 kilometres. So that's roughly the radius of our planet. And it's made of iron, and some parts of it are solid, and some parts of it are liquid. And it's about 5,700 degrees. Um, we, there are various reasons why we know that. Now, the heat that's in there comes from a range of sources. One of them is that when the Earth first formed about five, uh, four and a half uh, th uh, thousand million years ago, so 4.5 billion years ago the Earth was formed, it formed from a swirling pile of gas and dust which was flanking or surrounding the newborn sun, what we can now see in the, the sky. And that dust and gas would have all been bat battering and bombarding other bits of gas and dust and rubbing against each other. So it was already very hot. So some of the Earth's heat was already there when the material accreted together to form the planet. And so the Earth already had some embodied heat. As the material coalesced and squeezed under the influence of gravity to form a big ball, heavier stuff would have originally been on the surface with lighter bits mixed up in the middle. And just as if you pour concentrate for juice into a glass and then the water on top, you can end up with a water layer at the top and then a thicker sugary layer at the bottom. The heavy stuff has slowly over time been sinking down towards the earth core and the lighter stuff has been rising up towards the surface. This causes friction and that produces some heat inside the earth as well. But most of the heat we've got in there is in fact nuclear energy. When the earth formed, a lot of the material that formed our planet was radioactive and we've still got a lot of radioactive material inside the earth and radioactive materials when they decay and they spit out radioactivity they f they also produce a lot of heat and so this is called radiogenic heating and we think a high fraction of the heat that's in the earth is because there are radioactive chemicals down there in the core which as they radioactively decay release some heat and contribute to the heat inside the earth Thank you for that question, Ilam. I do believe we have a tag team taking on the Naked Scientist next. Teacher Rob Tate, who is next? Yeah, next up we have Amy and Nina. Amy and Nina. I don't know how you're going to turn this question or how you're both going to ask this question, but we're keen to hear. Hi. Hi. Does the chicken or the egg come first? <laughs> this is like a one-two punch, this one, isn't it? And, and I have to say, these are brilliant questions, and we, we didn't know what any of them were going to be. So thank you, everyone, for, for coming up with such fab questions. The answer is that, um, what are birds? Well, birds, many dub as living dinosaurs. Birds are the descendants, direct descendants of the dinosaurs, and dinosaurs laid eggs. So since chickens are derived from dinosaurs and dinosaurs were around laying eggs, I would say that the eggs must have come before the chicken because the dinosaur turned into the chicken. But to be perfectly honest with you, the, the reason we have egg laying at all is because we as mammals that have live young, and there are a couple of exceptions to that, but we as mammals who have live young are a relatively recent evolutionary adaptation most animals historically came up with the concept of the egg because the egg was like an incubator that you could deposit into the ground or around outside the body and it contained everything that an organism needed in order to produce a new thing of itself. And fish do this, turtles, 
many, many animals lay eggs. Mollusks, they all lay eggs as these external incubators for their young. Because we are a relatively recent addition, we have, we have, we've taken it a step further. We still have eggs, but they, they never leave the body, of course. So I would argue that probably eggs came before chickens because the process of having an external incubator to, to produce a new life form was very, very ancient in evolutionary terms, and chickens are relatively recent as descendants of dinosaurs. So I reckon the answer to your question is eggs came before chickens. Thank you, Amy and Nina. I learned so much from that. In fact, all the questions that uh, that have been asked up until now. Of course, Rob Tate uh, representing, interacting, facilitating four questions from the Year 7 class at the International School of Cape Town. Who's next, Rob? Uh, next up, we have May. May, we are listening. Hello. Uh, why did Chernobyl explode and is nuclear power safe? Oh, hello, May. Well, um, first of all, let's wind the clock back to the 1980s, the latter part of the 1980s. And the Chernobyl nuclear power station, uh, not far from Kiev in, U- in the Ukraine, um, that exploded because it was with a couple of things. One, the design of that nuclear station was slightly different to the design of more modern nuclear power stations, which meant it had some vulnerabilities. And number two, they were doing experiments on one of those reactors in order to test certain elements of how they function. And they ended up with a runaway reaction. The way a nuclear reactor works is that the core of the reactor has fuel rods. And these fuel rods are, for most of the reactors we're running at the moment, uranium. And that uranium is spitting out neutrons. Neutrons are one of the particles that are found in the nucleus of an atom. And those neutrons are slowed down by something which we call a moderator, which takes a little bit of the energy out of them. So that means they're more likely to to run into and hit another atom. And if they hit another atom, they can make the nucleus of that atom unstable and fall apart, which then makes even more neutrons come out, which then go and make more atoms fall apart. And that's a nuclear chain reaction. And the goal of a nuclear reactor is to control the rate at which that happens. And you're then able to control the rate at which it produces heat, because all the time that you're just as we were saying, there's heat inside the earth because of radioactive breakdown. All the time you've got these radioactive decays happening, you're liberating some heat. And that heat in the in the case of Chernobyl was being passed into water, which was taking the heat away, turning it into steam, driving a turbine and then making electricity. Now, you control that reaction by putting something in the way of the neutrons that soaks them up. And there are various control rods that can go down inside the reactor, get in the way of some of the neutrons, soak them up, and so you slow down the chain reaction. When they did the tests in Chernobyl, I I gather that they had removed the control rods automatically, just elevated them, and this allowed the reactor to build a head of steam, but then they couldn't reinsert the control rods and stop the reaction again. And what happened is it went into this positive feedback loop where as it got hotter and produced even more neutrons, it made the chain reaction go even faster, which produced even more neutrons, which made the chain reaction go even faster. And that's how a nuclear bomb works. And this led to very high temperature, very high pressure inside the core of the reactor, which further damaged the ability of the control mechanisms to stop it because they wouldn't work at those high temperatures and pressures because everything was going out of shape and and the reactor core was actually burning now and this then led to a catastrophic explosion 
and once the explosion vented the contents of the reactor and all the water that would also help to keep things cool and extract energy, then you just had a complete meltdown. And the meltdown is where the core gets so hot that it literally melts. And instead of having nice organised rods of fuel separated by graphite blocks and water and so on and control rods, you just have a huge great lump of melted molten uranium which is then capable of continuing to feed itself more and more neutrons to make the reaction go faster and faster and faster. And it, it's so hot it can literally burn its way through the floor of all the concrete in the reactor. And it's intensely dangerous and intensely radioactive. And the people who went to clean that up, some of them received a lethal dose of radiation from just being near that reactor for a matter of minutes. And now it remains, even decades later, intensely radioactive, very, very dangerous. And they've built a new shell or sarcophagus over the site to contain the site. And they've removed a lot of the material that was there and, and the debris that was there. But what's inside, the core of the old reactor that's, that's there sealed inside that sarcophagus, the aim of that uh, construction is to keep it sealed for at least another 100 years. And then we reevaluate, but the radioactive material that's in there will remain radioactive for hundreds of thousands of years, and, and the site will remain very, very dangerous for that long. Is nuclear power safe? In those hands, no. In the hands of a nuclear bomb artist, no. In the hands of a safe practitioner, it's an excellent source of energy which doesn't have the release of, of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, and therefore we regard safe nuclear energy as one of the ways to reduce our carbon footprint and therefore help to reduce the impact of climate change. Uh, and thank you, May, for that, uh, for that question. Uh, teacher Rob Tate, do you want to introduce our next quizmaster? Next up, we have Sammy. Sammy, we're all ears. Go ahead. Hi. Um, my question is, how much energy does a seed need to grow? First of all, what's a seed? A seed is produced by a plant for the purposes of reproduction. So in a seed, in the same way as we were talking about chickens and eggs and, and so on earlier, an egg is an incubator for a new animal, and inside the egg is a supply of raw materials to make stuff, proteins, and also a supply of energy. And so when you boil an egg and eat the yolk, that's a whole load of cholesterol and fat, which is the energy supply for the egg. A seed is the same in the sense that what you've got is a protective shell around the outside that keeps the energy-rich innards protected. And then you've got a big energy supply inside the seed. And when we go and, for instance, grow corn and we get the starch out to turn it into flour and make bread, we're eating the seed's energy supply. It's, that's the equivalent, the seed equivalent of egg yolk. And then inside that is the embryo. And the embryo is the fertilised bit, the, the thing that's going to give rise to the new plant, plugging itself into that energy supply that's inside the seed. Now, some plants have a strategy where they will have a very tiny seed. They will very quickly grow produce leaves and then start to grab sunlight to give them energy and water from the soil and nutrients from the soil. Other plants may not be able to rely on getting into good environments quickly. And you can probably think of an example if I say picture an island with palm trees, coconuts. Coconuts are seeds. Why does a tree go to such extraordinary lengths to make a massive seed for a coconut compared to say a crest seed or a grass seed you can barely see? And the answer is that the coconut doesn't know if it ends up in the sea, how long it's going to be in the sea before it finds a nice beach to wash up on. And then the sand is not very good in terms of quality of nutrients. It's not going to necessarily have enough daylight to get the plant going quickly. 
So it says, let's have a massive case of overkill, big seed, massive coconut, loads of energy in there in the form of the, the coconut, um, the, the interior of the coconut and the coconut milk. So lots of resources locked up. So it really depends on the environment that the seed is going to grow in, how much energy it needs to lock away, because its primary goal is once it finds or lands in the right place is to germinate, the embryo comes to life, sticks a root into the soil to anchor it and start to pull in water and nutrients, get the leaves out, a bit like a radio antenna, and that's your solar panels to get the energy from the sun. And it will really come down to the environment that that seed is operating in and how long it has to go for and sustain a new plant for before the plant can sustain itself. And that will come down to the evolution of that plant and the environment it grows in. And thank you for that question, Sammy. Teacher Rob, the next question comes from whom? Next up, we have Jack. Jack, we all ears. Go ahead. If energy cannot be made and only transferred, can we quantify how much energy we have in the world? Oh, hi, Jack. Well, the answer is we sort of can, because what we can do is work out how big the Earth is. We know how much the Earth weighs, in inverted commas. People have weighed the Earth in various ways. And we therefore know what the Earth's made of. And since everything's made of atoms, and here's a joke, by the way, never believe anything an atom tells you because they make up everything. Boom. But because we know how much an atom weighs, we can therefore approximate how much the world weighs in terms of what it's made of. We know how hot it is, and therefore we know how much energy those atoms have got. So we can work out basically how much energy there is in thermal terms. We can also work out how much energy there is in potential energy terms, because remember, as Einstein said, E, energy, e equals mass times the speed of light squared. So if we know how much something weighs, in inverted commas, what the mass is, we can therefore work out what the energy equivalent is. So we sort of could do that, yes. And we have time for one more question. Rob Tate, who's going to be ans asking that question? Um, last one up is Michael. Michael, we all ears. Why do we look different? I think wow. Michael said, why do we look different? And the answer is, Michael, that most of us on Earth look different, but there are some who look the same. And you can probably tell me who I'm referring to, where you've got people who are nearly identical. Stunned silence. I was referring yeah. to twins, of course, identical twins. Most people on Earth do look completely different, but there are some that don't. They are natural clones. And the reason that twins look identical tells us why the rest of us don't look identical. And that's where I'm going with this. Twins form, identical twins form, when a sperm and an egg meet fertilize and produce an embryo, which is a developing baby. And for some reason that's poorly understood, at a critical, very early point in development, this egg that's been fertilised splits in two and you've now got two mini-eggs. And because they contain stem cells, those stem cells can turn into any of the cells in the body and they go on to produce two genetically identical embryos rather than just one. So you get two offspring that look identical. Why don't the rest of us look identical? Because we inherit from our parents genes from mum and genes from dad and they're mixed up so mum has dna from her mum and her dad and dad has dna from his mum and his dad mum gives a random selection of the chromosomes from mum and dad to her eggs and dad gives a random selection of chromosomes from his mum and dad into his sperm so you end up with sperm that have got a random selection of each of the chromosomes that you need to make a person and they're brought together into the fertilized egg with one copy of each 
of chromosome from mum and dad. So you get two pairs of each chromosome. And because they were randomly selected from the parents, and this process is happening every time you make sperm and make eggs, and there are further mechanisms called crossing over, which are mixing up bits of the chromosomes as well during this process, every single individual that's conceived on Earth is genetically identical. With the exception of the twins that I started this explanation with, there are no individuals on Earth that have exactly the same DNA as you do. There aren't. And I know that's mind-boggling, but there are three billion letters in your genetic code, and there is not one person on Earth who has the same identical genetic code as you. And because 80% of your genes, there are about 20,000 genes running a human, because 80% of them are used to make the face and the head and build the nervous system because you've got such massive diversity in your genes and those genes are used overwhelmingly to build the body plan and especially the face we all look different because genetically we're all different we're gonna to have to rest it there michael you are special and everyone in the world is special i think that's what the naked scientist uh, has just told you thank you uh, for that interaction uh, dr chris smith the interaction with the international school of cape town their year seven class thank you for wonderful questions all of you guys out there and teacher rob tate thank you for facilitating all of us benefited in the process